Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. So we continue our study here in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We enter into this uh, specific and direct section, now turning our attention to uh, specific life areas or specific, um, uh, as some authors put it, specific callings in the Christian's life. So we would do well to as we look at these directives, as we look at uh, these commands, uh, to, f- to remind ourselves of the focus of this letter. And that focus is to put the exalted Christ on display. First, in chapter 1, it was the heavenly witness to the exalted Christ. And so we got a taste of, of the uh, inseparable operations of God then in chapters 2 and 3, we, we read and were taught about the earthly witness to the exalted Christ, whereby God then takes two and creates one man in Christ. And so here in chapters 4 and 5, as we've been working our way through it, Paul has turned to the earthly reality of the exalted Christ, that though Christ has been Uh, raised up on high he goes and sits at the right hand of the father he remains exalted on earth this comes by way of seeing the church as a metaphysical extension of christ that in chapter 4 verse 15 we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so this new creation body is to act accordingly. And here in chapter 5, the Spirit addresses the earthly reality of the exalted Christ through the lives of his children. In the first part of the chapter, Paul addressed general directions for the Christian life. And now here, beginning in verse 21 through the first part of chapter 4, he turns to more specific life situations that Christians will find themselves in. Specifically, as we see that our interactions are to be adorned with spirit-filled subjection. That the Spirit works to fill us up and Christ works to grow His body as we relate to each other appropriately. Remember back in verse 15 of chapter 4 that we are being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. Thus, submission, respect, and obedience must be addressed as well as self-sacrifice, discipline, and leadership must also be considered. These give shape and texture to the sort of relationships within which we live together. Although we would only be uh, addressing wives this morning, we're going to read as context beginning in verse 21 through verse 33. Follow along as I read the word of the Lord for us. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. 
he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their, own, to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, wa- of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or, wink- or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reverence or reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help this morning. O God, of all comfort, of all help, of all power and glory and majesty, we beseech you this morning that you would attend the preaching of your word, that you would bridle the lips and the tongue of your servant, that I may speak your truth, that your people may be discerning to understand what is the will of God so that they may be sanctified in this knowledge and so that we would not just be hearers of your word but doers also. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our head. Amen. Well, this morning, as we address this subject of uh, wives and their being subject to their own husbands, we address it under four headings. The first one is difficulty, then we'll look at definition, then design, and then finally, direction. As I was preparing uh, this message, it's taken me some time to think about it and weigh it especially in light of many things in our culture and especially in light of the sensitivity potentially of this subject. I was helped greatly by a 16th century book written by Girolamo Zanke called The Spiritual Marriage Between Christ and His Church. I was much helped by this book as it directed my attention and hopefully will translate to your attention to the idea of this passage, though finding some applicable Uh, understanding to wives and husband directs our attention to Christ, directs our attention to the church and its bridegroom, so that we would not overlook this important subject at hand and look for ways in which 10 ways wives may subject themselves to their husbands or that husbands love their wives, or even say that what men need or husbands need most of all is respect and what Women need most of all is love. Our wives need most of all is love. I don't believe that's the direction of Paul's writing. I think Paul is writing about a mystery, a great mystery, speaking with reference to Christ 
and the church. And yet we see as we understand that mystery greater, we understand greater our place or our responsibilities, our duty in our place, our status in life. And I was was helpful by this reminder from the introduction, which, of course, if it was a 16th century writing, it more than likely wasn't written in English, and so it needs to be translated. And Patrick O'Banion is the translator of this work, and he writes in his introduction, I I have somewhat of an extended quote for us this morning, but I think it gets to the heart of what may be difficult for us as we address this passage in light of its main topic, Christ and the church. He writes, we may be uncomfortable with the Spirit's use of marital language to describe our union with Christ, because even the best earthly marriages are very imperfect. Husbands can domineer or withdraw. Wives can subvert or manipulate. Both parties retreat emotionally and physically. We know too many stories of loveless marriages that stay intact for the sake of the children, only to to collapse when the nest is emptied, just as we also know couples who lose their passion for one another and seek fulfillment elsewhere, regardless of the children. In in, In an age of easy divorces, starter marriages, and shacking up, it's sometimes difficult to see the point of matrimony. All we need is love, or so we're told. And if we have it, we tell ourselves, we have enough. But what if that satisfyingly warm feeling of contentment and connection with the one lying next to us diminishes? Should we not be true to ourselves and get on with finding it somewhere else? Many enter into marriage with the assumption, either tacit or explicit, that they will remain united only so long as they feel themselves to be in love. The problem is not merely that we have too low a view of marriage, but that we set the bar of our expectation for marriage too high. We place too heavy of a burden upon the union by expecting our spouse to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. Once we realize our spouse cannot first because that's not his or her job, and second, because our hearts were not designed to find ultimate fulfillment in any creature. Our eyes begin to wander. We look elsewhere for satisfaction. The biblical mandate that calls a husband to love his wife as his own body, giving himself up for his bride as Christ loved the church, and that calls a wife to submit to her husband as to Christ offers a rather different perspective. For Paul in Ephesians 5 and for Zanke, our earthly marriages are like a mirror. They fulfill their truest purpose by drawing our attention toward the real thing, the spiritual marriage between Christ and his church. In other words, our earthly marriages only make sense when our union with Christ remains in view. They are to point away from themselves. And the delicious irony is that ultimately we can only understand and fully enjoy our earthly marriages when we view them in light of our spiritual marriage. And so my intent this morning is that we would see the beauty of the role of wives in light of its intended reference to Christ and the church. 
And that, wives, your submissiveness is to be as natural and honorable as the, as the church's subjection to Christ. And that we may not fall into despair as we see ourselves not meeting this standard in any way of perfection. We may be reminded of Christ's words as he called, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This difficulty we find in our marriages is not least of all helped by the position marriage is held by our culture. If we can even call marriage in any position in our culture, there was a time where a pastor might stand before his church and say, we must press against the imposition or the impressing upon the modern feminist movement, which is seeking to uh, destroy marriage by reducing the roles to just mere itemized things that you do this and I do that. And we will come together in this 50-50 type of relationship. Well, we've gone so much further in a culture where definitions of what a man is and what a woman is have, have fallen to absurdity. So then to address this and say that we must press against something of marriage. No, as a church, we actually stand and in guard that we hold what is true and reasonable. That means that what is actually able to be reasoned is what true marriage is. And so it should come to no surprise that in the life of the church that Paul here addresses such domestic responsibilities as wives being subject to their own husbands and husbands loving their wives and children obeying their parents and fathers raising up and disciplining their children and masters being kind to their servants and servants seeking to honor their masters. And so this may be difficult for us because we're infiltrated with this idea of equality. This idea that there is no defined boundaries, there is no roles, there is no creative order. And so when an idea that wives would be subject to their own husbands, we rail against it and we say, well, it must not mean what it seems to mean. It must not place the wife under the husband. Well, it's the wisdom of Scripture that helps us with this difficulty because if we first uh, view it and consider it then according to the flesh, yeah, we may find ourselves saying, no, it, we shouldn't do that. But if we understand what is this great mystery that Christ in the church, we would never say it's in inappropriate to say that Christ is or the church is under Christ and so we rejoice at that idea that we have such a head that we have such a relationship that we are called to be the body of Christ and be subject to him as our head and so we should address it in that way defeating this difficulty so that you would not find Christ's words here, for they are the words of Christ to be a heavy, laden burden, 
to be something that weighs upon you that you must uh, bear up in yourself as if it wasn't something that he has already done for you. For we read that it is the afflictions of Christ. It was him, it was the son who comes and assumes human form, who subjected himself to the father. And he does so as our exemplar. He does so as our first. He does so as the second Adam. He does so as our husband. So that we as his bride may willingly subject ourselves to him. And so wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. I don't want you wives to be discouraged this morning. I want you to be encouraged that you have such a wonderful goal. You have such a wonderful duty as to picture the bride of Christ to her head. You may do this in a very real way as you subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Though as it is with this difficulty, I think it's important and it's helpful that we define our terms what does scripture mean by subjection and it's helpful i read uh beginning in verse 21 because you'll see if you're reading out of the nasb the word be subject is in italics that's because it doesn't exist in the original language it says wives to your own husbands as to the lord for Paul was connecting it directly to verse 21 and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. He goes on to say, though, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. It's not till verse 33 where Paul says that wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So again, we're drawn to this, this definition of subjection is not unconnected. It's directly, it's, it's, um, it's materially connected to the church being subject to Christ. And so this idea of subjection in general is the subordination of one creature to another for the good of both. This according to the wise ordering of the creator we we bow our knee we we prostrate ourselves before the creator and we proclaim that it is his ordering we are his creatures and he is able to order as he wills and in other places we see it was for adam was created first and eve second and this so that we may see this creative order, this beautiful picture of, of complementary uh, sexes and genders, but greater than that, we may see the primacy of Christ. We may see the beauty of the church who comes, who is drawn to him, finds completion in him. And so, by way of definition, in general, is... Subjection is the, in general, is the subordination of one creature to another for the good of both. John Gill says, subjection lies in honor and reverence and obedience. 
as we see in the larger context, it is set apart from sub, uh, set apart from subjection, or this subjection is set apart from the subjection of children to parents, and so it is not as children are to be subject to their parents, much less as servants to their master, but this subjection is of a more intimate kind. For it says in verse 31, the, the, uh, the analogy drawn for us, the typology that's given to us, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The subjection of wives to their husband is more intimate than a child subjects to a parent or a, a servant to a master. No, this subjection is more free and ingenious, for there is a greater coordination between husband and wife than any other relation. They should think well of their husbands. A wife should think well of their husband. By way of definition, subjection means that you would think well of your husband, that you would speak becomingly to them and respectfully of them, that the wife should take care of the family and family affairs in accord with the husband. Even in such a way that the wife should imitate him in what is good, and bear with him that which is not so agreeable. This I've been helped greatly by John Gill. As he continues, he, he, he says, She should help and assist in caring and providing for the family, and should abide with him in prosperity and adversity. As, a, as wives understand their role in marriage, that this subjection is not one of... Um, ontologically second status of a lesser created degree, but one of, of glorious position to be a helpmate, to help the husband, to continue with the husband, to share in the prosperity of the family as well as in the adversity of it. Subjection lies in honor and reverence and obedience. This definition, as we, as we look at it, will come into a greater uh, flower as we look at the design. What is the design here that wives be subject to your own husbands? Well, the testimony of Scripture as to wives being subject to uh, their own husbands is manifold. Colossians 3.18 Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter 3, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. We may ask ourselves, and I certainly thought of this myself, is why, why the focus for the wife to be subject to her own husband. Why here, Paul, or even the Spirit, is here to encourage wives in their role in the family? And what is their exhortation here? Is that they be subject to their own husbands, or in other uh, older translation, to be submissive to their husbands? Why is the focus here? And I 
And I disagree that it's not because that's what husbands need the most. I don't think husbands need the subjection of their wives to love their husbands. For as we will see, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And we all know ourselves as the church. And we know how oftentimes we treat Christ. And yet here, husbands are exhorted to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And we know we are loved by Christ even when we don't act accordingly. But it's not that husbands need this. But I think it's because it's in light of our fallen natures, our, our, the infirmity of our fallen nature that, that the Spirit exhorts women or wives to be subject to their own husbands. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. First, we recognize that uh, marriage comes before the fall. Marriage is given to Adam or given to mankind for a specific purpose, to fulfill a, a specific uh, calling, not least of which being a picture of Christ in the church, actually ultimately being a picture of Christ in the church. But we know that there is, there, the uh, sinless estate in which they were created did not continue due to the due to the fall, due to the sin of Adam and Eve. And so God uh, has judgment upon them. And he has judgment upon the woman in chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord says, I will greatly multiply, multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The wife's place in marriage was one that prior to the fall was kept in sinless delight, being the perfect complement to her husband. It is, in, it is the exhortation of the apostle here that because of sin's attacks upon this blessedness that we read in Genesis 3.16 that the fall would cause the woman to seek to desire her husband or to usurp her husband's authority. And the phrase, he shall rule over you, and the parallel wording in chapter 4, verse 7, suggests that her desire is to dominate. The marriage ordinance continues, but is frustrated by the battle of the sexes. And so we are reminded of Christ's words to the disciples, that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Wives, be subject to your own husbands is brought up here as the prime exhortation to wives, not least of which being the picture of the church to Christ, but practically speaking, because this is the plight of our fallen nature's infirmity, that wives will by their old selves seek to frustrate, undermine, manipulate their husband's authority. Maybe in small ways, maybe in grand ways. But here, between wives being subject to their husbands and husbands loving their own wives, I think Paul is putting in our 
picture here, or the Spirit through Paul is putting in our picture picture here, what we have in Christ. The reversal of 3.16. That wives don't need to usurp their husbands. They they don't have that oughtness anymore. They have a new oughtness. They have a new desire that that they would be subject to their own husbands. That husbands wouldn't seek to dominate their wives, rule over them, but they would seek to love them. And so in the coming weeks, as we address the husbands, we'll see that this call for the husbands to love their own wives is because their inclination towards ruling and domination also. So in Christ, this is put back right. What was put on its head in the garden is uh, put back upright in Christ in the second Adam. And so we see Paul's words in chapter 4, 22. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Deceitful desires. Oh, wives, do not believe deceitful desires that you are the better one to lead you are the better one to be the head for we see in other places in first peter as he addresses this in in peter's letter he he writes uh to the churches And he tells them that uh, as he addresses wives in chapter 3, he says that in the same way, wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And, he's, and then he draws on the example of former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. And he used Sarah and Abraham as an example. Abraham wasn't a good head. He led her into deceptive behavior. We know this with Abimelech. We know this with, in other places. We know Abraham was not Christ. But Sarah, here, we have reason to believe that Sarah hoped in God, not in Abraham. And so she was able to obey Abraham, calling him Lord. He says that, and you having become her children, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. This meekness and quietness is chiefly exercised in bridling our passions. When anything falls out, cross and contrary to our desires and expectations and we eschew all needless contradiction and expressions of malcontentedness oh to be have a meek 
and quiet spirit. This lends to being subject to our own husbands. We read that in Genesis 2.18, when God creates man, or he creates man and he brings before Adam all the other creatures. All the other creatures are presented to Adam so that he would know what God knew and that it was not good for man to be alone. And so he provides the woman as a helper. And so as it was not good for man to be alone, Eve was said to be a comfort to Adam. And as there was none suitable in all of creation, she was said to be a help. There was none like him. Not of the primates, not of uh, the amphibians, not of the horses, not of any other beasts of the field. It was to be the woman specially created for his help and comfort. That as his help, that her concern would be toward her husband's lead. To help us understand a contrast from this idea of being a comfort and help, we may be reminded what the Proverbs say, that a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. And again, it is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Here is the antithesis for comfort and help. The design of marriage, the, the great wonderful design of marriage and picturing the church in Christ is that husbands would be subject to their own husbands as to the Lord. That they would be a comfort and help to him. That they would display their gentle and quiet or meek spirit. That they would not seek to undermine his authority, but willingly Submit themselves to it. Oh, what wonderful things are said in Scripture towards these things. And there may be many of an example brought to your minds, I'm sure. My wife can be the chief of those as to why a husband is not worthy of this subjection. And no man no mere man is. No mere man is worthy of this subjection. Don't look to your husbands and say, if he's worthy, I will submit. If he's worthy, then I will seek to support him. We have the direction of this to help us this morning. Because wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. As Michael Allen observes, what may be perceived as a horizontal command relating to interpersonal behavior among mere mortals here joins with a vertical aspect. One's posture before the Lord will be manifest in one's manner to one's own husband. And if you're sitting here and you're, you're not a wife, maybe you're not, even, uh, you're not even a female and you're thinking, well... You know, I'll, I'll just remember this for my wife one day. I'll remember this for when I'm married. We can add to this that one's posture before the Lord will be manifest in one's manner 
to one another. For the beginning of our passage says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. But here, as it applies to wives, in one's manner to one's own husband, if one is a married woman, a wife shall treat her husband out of faith as the Lord would have him treated, even if the husband is not particularly appealing or especially competent. We will see that this doesn't put the husband in a place where uh, he never looks to the talents of his wife, that he never relies on her intelligence and her abilities to help in, in the household, that the husband dismisses her God-given abilities, but actually the husband is to foster them and to grow them and to see them come into full flower, as the husband is to, is to present his bride to God, having no spot or wrinkle or anything, but that she would be holy and blameless. But here, women, we are to see that it's not subjection to your husband is to be as to the Lord, not as to his ability to live up to his role that that our direction in being subject to our own husbands is the Lord and not our husbands because the mystery is great Paul is speaking with reference to Christ and the church And if we've sat here this morning and we've considered all the ways, I'm sure, as it weighs upon you in which maybe you haven't been subject to your husband. Maybe you've sought to undermine him in different ways and at different terms, manipulate him. You haven't trusted the Lord in the leadership of your husband. Not that you shouldn't encourage him. Not that in, as being a true helper and helpmate, you should encourage your husband in the Lord. But there's that line, and you know it in your heart, between encouragement and undermining. Between encouragement and contention, contentiousness. And maybe you'll have drawn your mind to all those ways. And you sit here defeated, and that goes against the intent of my message this morning. So that... I think it would be helpful for us to have a blessed remembrance of what our confession says on the chapter of good works. And we would do well to remember that it says that as they are good, they proceed from the Spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection. And let me say this, husbands, you may be sitting here wrongfully tallying up all the ways your wife has not been subject to you. And here may it be a bridle to that thought. May it be a rebuke and a correction to that thought. For you are to view her as God views her in Christ. That we come to each other, we come to a marriage with the understanding that we come with so much weakness and imperfection. 
that all of our interactions will be wrought or will be, not wrought, will be mixed with such weakness and imperfection. So we would accept our wives' subjection as God accepts it. Being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him. Even those stuff that are mixed with weakness and perfection are accepted in Christ, not as though they were in this life holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And know that as you do so, it will be accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Husbands, know it will be accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. And so we can come to our wives, forgiving them of such things. Ready to restore your marriage relationship at every turn. As the church comes to Christ, knowing they can never live up to the standard by which we are called to be holy as our Father is holy, but knowing that in Christ we are accepted holy as Christ is unblameable, as Christ is unreprovable. And so let us fuel also our greater desire to fall in line with God's great design for marriage. That as husband and wives enter or continue in this holy union, they do so in the fear of Christ. They do so in his strength. They do so being united to Christ and filled with his spirit. And that we may always be ready to give thanks for all things especially our blessed unions. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us such wonderful direction and encouragement this morning. Oh, Lord, may it be an encouragement even to those who have not entered into a marriage bond, but that wait upon that time, that they may be better equipped to do so. And even if, Lord, even until then, may be encouragement to us as a church to be subject to our bridegroom in all things. For he is our Lord. He is our Savior. We owe him our very lives, our very existence. May our hearts be filled with thanksgiving. May our minds be turned to our bridegroom. We thank you, Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen.